Um, well, my name is Alex Deacons. If you guys haven't uh, met me before, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but when I was a little kid, uh, one of my absolute favorite pastimes was playing with Legos. Are there any Lego fans out there? Now, this happens, okay, in every service, I know there are more Lego fans than that. Some of you are just a little too embarrassed to admit that you still like Legos. There is no shame in still liking your Legos, all right? I was thinking about Legos because I was prepping for this message, and a couple weeks ago, I decided to pull out my Legos, and my wife and I had like a Lego date night, and we just made Legos all night. Well, really what happened was my wife played Legos for 15 minutes, and I played Legos for about an hour and a half. Um, and then when I was done building my Legos, I chased her around the house going pew, 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 and getting her with the spaceship lasers and all that kind of stuff. So there's no shame in it, all right? I'm, I'm an official adult, apparently, and you're still allowed to play with Legos. Uh, but I love that feeling, right? You remember like the satisfying feeling of like the click when you get two pieces and you push them together and they link and you put another piece on that, another piece on that, and you have a big old wall or something, right? I love like the creativity of getting to make different things that I've never made before. And I love, and, and I hope you remember this, that like the tactile experience of raking your hands through the bucket and that noise that it makes, you know the noise, the that's just so nostalgic, right? As you feel your skin being exfoliated by hundreds of tiny little sharp plastic corners, right? And I loved like picking up a whole handful of Legos and just the chaos of throwing them into the air, knowing that some of those pieces will never be found again, at least not until my dad steps on them. Um, I love Legos and I love making new things, right? Like walls and castles and dungeons and, and like cars. And then, but, but I would say probably for me and for my older brother, hands down, our favorite thing to make was Lego spaceships. Like I spent hours in my room with my older brother as a kid building Lego spaceships. Um, and we, when we were done with our Lego spaceships, we would always kind of try to figure out whose was better, right? So we would look at different characteristics of it. We would look at the cool factor. And unfortunately, my brother would always steal the cool red and, and black pieces, and I was stuck with the weird little yellow piece that had like the smiley face and the white pieces. And so his always kind of tended to win on the cool factor, but that didn't stop me from arguing that mine were cooler than his, right? And then we would assess like the creativity, you know, who used the cooler pieces in a unique way to make jet and thrusters and lasers and stuff like that. There was, there was that factor. But unfortunately, those are subjective, right? They're not measurable. And so me and my older brother, we did what brothers do, and we argued endlessly about whose spaceship was better. But at some point, someone, don't know who or why or when, but somebody introduced us to the idea of structural integrity. And because we were both nerds, this was like a game changer, right? The idea of like, is your leg, whose spaceship is stronger? And that's, first of all, that's really important because the better the structural integrity of a Lego spaceship, the more it's gonna withstand, withstand the lasers of the enemies, right, in real space battle. So that's, that's a pretty big deal, it's pretty important. But also, it was important because this was something objective, this was something measurable. Right, that we could figure out, we could actually count whose was better. And so we came up with a series of tests to test the structural integrity of our Lego spaceships. The first test, we would take our spaceship, we would hold it about waist height, and we would do drop it on the ground. And if it survived that without more than just kind of like a superficial piece or two falling off, then we would move up to the next uh, test and we would hold it at about shoulder height and we would drop it. And if it survived that, then we would take it to the top bunk and we would drop it from the top bunk. And if it survived that, then it would move up to the highest level of structural integrity testing, the A++ certification test. What we would do is we would hold our Lego spaceship in hand and we would turn the ceiling fan on high. It's wonderful. 
This is scientific, right? And then we would take our Lego spaceship and we would chuck it at the ceiling and watch it bounce off the ceiling so that it would hit the ceiling from above and knock into one of the ceiling fans again, launched from the blade into the wall, hit the wall, hit the floor. And if it survived this, without anything more than a superficial piece or two getting knocked off, then our Lego spaceship would receive the A++ structural integrity certification, the highest level of structural integrity certification known to man or at least me and my brother when we were kids. And it wasn't long before we realized it's actually a lot more fun to skip all those other tests and then just go right to the A++ test, right? Because my brother, he would make these really good, like, like structurally sound Lego spaceships, right? And he would take his and he would throw them into the ceiling and they'd hit the ceiling, they'd bounce off, hit the fan, hit the wall, hit the floor, and they would come out like, like unscathed relatively. Sometimes it seemed like, I, I could swear like they were getting stronger somehow. He had one that I think did that like a hundred times and probably left dents in the wall, but didn't break at all. But me, as the younger brother, mine did not do so well. And that was just as fun. So we would take one of my Lego spaceships and we'd throw them into the ceiling and they'd hit the ceiling, they'd break it half, they'd hit the ceiling fan, and then they would just shatter into dozens and dozens of pieces all over the room. Some of those pieces, again, never to be found again. And, and, and as a little kid, this was incredibly frustrating, right? It seemed like my older brother just had this natural, inborn, magical ability to build structurally sound Lego spaceships. It drove me crazy. What I didn't understand, being seven years younger than him, was that he understood and he implemented a couple of really basic things that I just didn't, I didn't know. Right? He knew that some of the Lego pieces were like tighter fitting and some were looser fitting. So he never used the loose ones. He only used the tight ones. He knew that if you push the pieces together harder, you have a, a, a tighter grip between the two of them, a, a firmer bond between the two of them. And he knew some really basic geometry things, right? That like triangles and domes are stronger shapes. Me as a little kid, I didn't understand these. So I grabbed whatever loose fitting Legos I found. I pushed them together without the strength of someone seven years older than me. And I had big sticky outy bits that would just snap off when they hit the fan. You know, I was horrible at this. And so as a result, he would take his spaceship, he'd throw them in the ceiling, they hit the ceiling, hit the fan, hit the wall, hit the floor, and they would come out, no problem. But mine would break into pieces every time, it seemed like. And it's, it seems to me that you and me, people sitting next to you, all of humanity, we're a lot like Lego spaceships in this way, aren't we? That there are some of us who seem to be able to go through adversity, through pain, through suffering. We seem to be able to hit the ceiling and the fan and the wall and the floor and come through. And, 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 and although those people feel the pain, they feel the grief and the hurt and the tragedy and the difficulty, they seem to come through just as strong, maybe even stronger. They seem to have more resilience, more fortitude, more anti-fragility, right, which is the ability to get stronger after suffering. But some of us, we hit suffering and pain and adversity, we break into half, and then we shatter into pieces. If it's bad enough, maybe even beyond hope of ever being put back together in the same way again. And for those of us who break in adversity, the question as we look at those who seem to get stronger is, is are they just magically, innately gifted? Are they just, do they have something that we don't have? Or there are things that they're doing, whether they realize it or not, that are making them stronger, that are giving them more resiliency, more fortitude, more anti-fragility. And if there is something that they're doing that we're not, can we kind of reverse engineer that? Can we learn that? And that is really what this series is about. 
Uh, Ryan has done a beautiful job setting up this series on the book of Philippians and, and introducing the book of the Philippians, the uh, book of Philippians and the background and all that kind of stuff. The, the book of Philippians, it's not a book about emotional and mental health, but it is a book of Paul's emotional and mental health on display. And so normally when we do a sermon series, what we're doing is we're exegeting, which is a fancy bible way to say we're just trying to figure out what is the author trying to say. And we're still doing that. It's still a really important thing that we try to stay anchored in as we preach and as we develop series and stuff. But, but there's something else we're doing in this series. We're trying to read behind, between the lines a little bit more. We're trying to see, can we figure out how Paul got to the place of this incredible emotional and mental health, and can we reverse engineer that a little bit? Because Paul is writing the book of Philippians from prison with the possibility of his execution hanging over his head. And the book is full of the word joy. Right? And you know when you read someone who's just faking it. And when you read Philippians, they're just, he's not faking it. The guy is full of joy and peace and trust in the Lord from prison. And so we're trying to figure out, is there something about the way that he lives, the way that he's doing his life that we can learn from, that we can follow Paul as he follows Christ and get a little bit stronger? And so that brings us uh, to Philippians. Uh, let's see, chapter one, verse 18, uh, 18 and a half. Paul says this. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And so what is Paul doing here? It's so weird. Paul is casually musing about the possibility of his death or his deliverance. That's not normal, right? He's either crazy, detached, suicidal, or incredibly healthy, focused on something more meaningful than his own life. And so Paul, he's saying this. He's saying, you know, I realize that the circumstances that I'm in are gonna end in one of two ways. One option is I get set free. The other option is I'm executed. And I don't know. They both sound pretty good to me. That's not normal. <laughs> That's, I don't, I've never met anybody who's like, I might die soon, who's like, meh. They both sound good. At least not anybody who, who, who isn't tapping into the same thing that Paul's tapping into. And so he says, you know, if I, if I live, he says, for me to live is Christ, right? My life has been full of seeing the power of God working, of seeing the gospel move forward. It's exciting, it's powerful, it's good, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And if I live, I'll get to see you guys again, the Philippian church, which is a really special group of people to Paul. He says, if I get to see you, I know that you'll be encouraged because I won't be dead. And generally, when your friend's not dead, that's encouraging. You know, I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've noticed that I'm encouraged by my friends being not dead. Um, and he said, that would be great because then I would be encouraged by the fact that you're encouraged and I could continue to invest in you and see you grow and develop and mature in the Lord. He says, but if I die, well, then I'll be so much closer to Jesus. Like, and that's, that's the whole point. I've just been wanting to get closer and closer and closer to him. And he says, I'm hard pressed. I don't know which one I want. They both sound so good. 
I don't think you or I would hold it against Paul that this part of the letter looked very different, right? Like, if I were writing this letter, if I were in Paul's situation, I would probably be saying, guys, I'm freaking out. I can't sleep. I'm so anxious. I'm so depressed. Would you send some balm for my wrists, which are like chafing under the weight of these chains every single day? Like, like would, you, would you send someone, you know, to lobby on my behalf or a really good lawyer or someone with a fat wad of cash to grease the right palms so I can get out of here? Guys, would you be praying for me? Guys, I'm freaking out. But that's not what he says. He says, man, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So the question for us is, is how is he in this perspective? How is he in this place? Well, there's two things I wanna look at to try to kind of reverse engineer how Paul gets to this position, how Paul gets to this perspective, how he gets to this place of, of mental and emotional strength and resiliency and fortitude and anti-fragility. Uh, the first is the rest of the story uh, in Acts chapter 16. A couple weeks ago, uh, when Ryan launched us into this sermon series, he walked us through Acts 16, because Acts chapter 16 is the story of the birth of the Philippian church, when Paul and a guy named Silas, they go and they, they visit Philippi, and, and they have an interaction with a woman named Lydia, who's a relatively wealthy merchant lady, and she ends up coming to the Lord. And then there's a servant girl who follows them around forever, kind of prophesying because she has these de demonic spirits, and then they get annoyed by that, so they cast out the spirit. And then her owners are upset with that, so they have Paul and Silas thrown in prison. And that third story of them in prison is the one we're gonna dive into a little bit. Um, and the second thing that I wanna dive into is we try to reverse engineer uh, Paul's you know, mental and emotional strength that he can come to the point where he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Second thing is something in psychology that's known as theories of emotion. Um, now, I am not a psychologist, I'm not a therapist. Um, I'm just someone who has the internet and likes to pretend that I know what I'm talking about. Um, and so uh, I told all the other services that if I made a mistake that someone could correct me so I could sound more like I know what I was talking about. But you guys are the third service, so if I make a mistake, just pretend you liked it. Pretend it was fine and I knew what I was talking about. Um, that'll make me feel better. Um, but uh, so as we dive into that a little bit, um, just a, a, little, a little bit of pause, a little break for you. If you're not a nerdy person, you can just check out for like five minutes and check back in when we get to the story. I promise it'll make sense if you just turn off your brain for a couple of minutes. Um, but anyway, so theories of emotion in psychology, they're basically this. They're, they're a set of different theories that are trying to figure out what is the first link in the chain of events that leads to your emotions. Now, the thing about this is that there are dozens of different theories of emotion. There doesn't seem to be any particular um, theory of emotion that people you know, have a consensus on. And, and I, my guess is that it's because emotions are complicated. People are complicated. If you've ever like, met a teenage girl, you know that emotions are complicated. If you've ever had a friend, you know, guy, girl, son, daughter, husband, wife, human beings and their emotions and their thoughts, they are complicated. And so I don't think it's easy to just kind of summarize those things up really quickly and say, oh, this is how emotions work. Right? And, but the thing is, as I look at it, it seems to be that many of these theories of emotion have a little piece of the puzzle. Like there's some truth and some validity to them. And so I think it's worth paying attention to. And the other thing about theories of emotion is, is the reason we look at theories of emotion is as we're trying to figure out what's the first link that leads to the emotion, well then that might give way to something that I would call a practice of emotion. Like what can I do with this information? If I understand where emotions might start from, then what can I do in order to have a healthier emotional response when things happen? 
Right, and so there are three major categories of theories of emotion, although there's dozens of different theories of emotion. Um, the first is, is uh, what we call a physiological theory of emotion, and then we have neurological theories of emotion and cognitive theories of emotion. So a physiological theory of emotion, generally speaking, says this. The first link in the chain of events that leads to your emotions is your physical response. So you have a stimulus, something like maybe a loud noise, boom, that sounds like maybe a, a gunshot, right? So a physiological theory of emotion would say the first thing that happens is actually your physical response. Right? So your heart starts pe beating, your, your, your hands start sweating, and, and maybe you jump. Right? And that physical response then triggers the emotion, in this case, that we would call fear. And so the practice of emotion that comes from a physiological theory of emotion is, is actually changing and shifting our body and our postures and our body language in order to control and develop and mature our emotional responses, right? And so you've probably heard people say things like this and they've studied it and there seems to be some element, at least in some situations of truth to this, right? If you smile, you actually very possibly get a little bit happier. If you frown, you seem to get a little bit more sad. If you have like stand in a power stance or something like that, you'll feel a little bit more bold, a little bit more confident. If you have a diminutive posture, you'll tend to feel a little bit weaker. Uh, the next category of theories of emotion is what's called the neurological theories of emotion. Neurological theories of emotion, uh, they, they would say this, that the first uh, link in the chain of events that leads to your emotions would be your thalamus, which is like a part of your brain that's kind of like the pre-brain part of your brain. So you don't really have much control over this. They would say you hear the stimulus, the, the, the big loud noise, it sounds like maybe a gunshot. And then your thalamus instantly says, ooh, big noise, this is a problem. And at the same exact moment, it sends a, a trigger to your physical uh, response part of your brain and the emotional response part of your brain. So they would, those theories of emotion would say that your heart's gonna start beating and your palms are gonna start sweating and you're gonna jump at the exact same moment that you're gonna feel the emotion of fear. And so because our thalamus is not something that we can control the same way that you can control your body or your thoughts, the practice of emotion that comes from a neurological theory of emotion is something called uh, exposure therapy, right? And exposure therapy is pretty simple. It's basically face your fears, right? So, so you go into the things, you experience the things that cause you the negative emotions. So for example, if loud noises that sound like maybe a gunshot are causing you a problem in life, then maybe what you could do is you could go every Tuesday and spend some time at the gun range. Or maybe you could be someone who enjoys blowing up balloons and popping them a couple times a day and eventually you'll stop freaking out when you hear the loud noises. Some of you are like, balloon popping, no thank you, I'm not gonna do it. It's horrible. My wife's one of those people, she hates balloon popping. Like one of those people's like, I'm just gonna leave, I'm gonna leave the building until the balloon popping is done and then I'll come back. Um, I think it's kind of fun. I don't know, it's just watching people scream, but I like it. But anyway, so that would be what you would do. That's the practice of emotion that, that you would get from a, a neurological theory of emotion. Then the third category of theories of emotion would be a cognitive theory of emotion. Now, cognitive theories of emotion, they basically say this. The first link in the chain of events that leads to your emotions is your thoughts. And so you hear a loud noise, and uh, you then think, oh my gosh, it's a gun, someone's shooting at me, I'm gonna die, I'm in danger. And that causes fear. And so the practice of emotion that would come from that would be just kind of controlling and altering our thought process to have a healthier emotional response. So if we hear a loud noise, maybe instead of thinking, oh no, I'm gonna die, we think, oh, it's probably just a car backfiring. Or if you live in my neighborhood, you think, oh, that's definitely a gun, but at least they're not shooting at me. Um, yeah, true story, every once in a while. Um, sometimes it's just like fireworks and I'm okay with that, you know? At least that's what, you know, the cognitive part of my brain is telling myself. It's just fireworks. Um, 
And so what's interesting is I see all of these practices of emotion saturating Paul's life. As you read his life, he's engaging in these over and over and over again. My guess is he didn't sit down with a psychologist and talk about theories of emotion, but he seems to intuitively know this probably just as, as he follows the Lord. And so we see all these actually at play in Acts chapter 16, right? So in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they're thrown into prison and they get into prison and they start doing something so weird, like just not normal prison activity. They're not like pumping iron or like, you know, turning toothbrushes into things that they can stab people with or anything like that. Instead of doing any of those normal prison activities, Paul and Silas, they start singing hymns to the Lord. They start worshiping God. You can imagine maybe they're on their knees before the Lord. Maybe they're lifting their hands as they worship God. This looks an awful lot like the practice of emotion that might follow a physiological theory of emotion. Right, they're taking their body and they're dragging it into alignment with the reality that God is in control, that he is good, that he is powerful, that he is sovereign, that he is worthy of their worship. This is why I would say, or at least this is one of the reasons why we see the Bible over and over and over saying to worship the Lord in everything that we have. In Psalms 95, it says, shout to the Lord, sing to the Lord, kneel to the Lord, bow before the Lord. Why? Because first and foremost, God is worthy of our worship, but there is a side effect of this. It's just possible that when we worship the Lord, when we face adversity, when we're in prison, when we're suffering, when we're dealing with painful situations or grief or anxiety, if we just say, you know, I, I don't know how to control my, my emotions or my mind, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take my body and I'm going to drag it into, into submission to, to the reality that God is good and that he's in control. A, that's just something we're supposed to do. B, it might just pull our emotions and our thoughts and our whole body and all of who we are into alignment with that reality. And so as they're worshiping God in prison, something really weird happens, even weirder than them worshiping God in prison. The earth begins to shake. And as the earth shakes, then the prison doors, they all fling wide open. And again, Paul and Silas, they do like the opposite of what you're supposed to do when you're in prison and the doors fling open. They stay put. That is like prison escape 101. Gates open, you leave. That's normal. Like they're very bad prison escapees. They've obviously never watched any of the movies. Anybody ever watched Prison Break? It's a weird, horrible TV show. But it's like the whole premise is like, let's get out of prison. When the gates open, you leave. That's what you do. It's pretty simple, but they stay put. They don't leave. Why? Maybe they're paying attention to something the Lord was doing. It seems to me that what they're engaging in is something even more powerful than the practice of emotion that would, that would follow a neurological theory of emotion. Right? This is more than just exposure therapy. This is more than just face your fears. They're leaning into the suffering. What better metaphor or analogy for suffering than being in prison? But for Paul and Silas, this isn't an analogy. This isn't a metaphor. This is their life. They're actually in prison. And the doors actually open up. And they stay put. Our culture lately has been paying a lot of attention to emotional and mental health, as well we should, because we're having some real problems with that, and we have for a while. It was bad before COVID, and COVID certainly didn't make things any better. 
But it seems to me that when you kind of listen to, you know, everything that's kind of oozing out of our culture on TikTok and on Instagram and all that kind of stuff, that the number one thing that people are saying is just, just control the circumstances around you, right? Like, like get out of that bad situation, get rid of the toxic people, don't listen to the people who are causing you stress or anxiety or depression, you know, change the circumstances around you, get out of prison. They're saying to do that. And I would say that there is some validity to that. That is a, a good and a healthy and a right thing to do in some situations. Peter, earlier in the book of Acts, is in prison. And the Holy Spirit sets him free. And by, le- by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Peter leaves prison. He gets out of those circumstances of the suffering of the prison, of the adversity, of the pain. But Paul and Silas, by leading of the Holy Spirit, in this instant, instance, they stay in prison. Paul is a man that we're told, you know, earlier in the book of Acts, when he comes to the Lord, he's told prophetically that he's going to suffer so much for the gospel. In the book of Corinthians, Paul is listing off so much of the suffering. He says, five times I was whipped 39 times. He says, one time they stoned me so badly that they left me for dead. He said, I can't even count the number of times that I've been beaten or in prison. He said, three times I've been shipwrecked. One time I was lost at sea for a day and a night. And a little while later, In that same letter to the Corinthians, Paul is talking about a quiet time, a time that he spent with the Lord one day. He said, I was talking to the Lord about this thorn in my flesh, this suffering, this adversity, this pain that follows me everywhere. And he said, I heard Jesus speaking to me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul has learned that sometimes you get out of, the, out of prison, but sometimes you lean into the pain. That's why in the book of Romans he says, hey, don't worry about persecution, about suffering, because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope in Jesus does not disappoint. And so for you and me, when we're, when we're facing suffering and adversity and pain, maybe just really quick before you get out of there, before you try to manipulate the circumstances around you or, or, or get out of those circumstances or go out the prison or maybe just lean into the Holy Spirit for just a moment and say, is this a moment to leave? Or is this a moment to lean into the suffering? And so Paul and Silas, they, they stay in prison, Right? And then the guard comes in and he sees the doors are open and he's afraid that he's lost all of his prisoners. And so he's about ready to commit suicide for fear and anxiety of the consequences that would be coming down for him. But Paul stops him. He says, wait, 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 don't do that. We're still here. And you imagine, again, the prison guard looks at them and says, you guys are horrible at escaping. Those doors are open. Why are you still here? Like normal people leave prison when the doors open. You guys are still here. And, and he says to them, what must I do to be saved? And, and then he invites them to his house and they preach the gospel to him. They share it with him and, and him and his whole family come to the Lord. And the church in Philippi is born that day. See, Paul and Silas, they weren't just paying attention to their suffering or their adversity or their pain. They weren't fixating on those things. They weren't ruminating on how can we get out of here. Rather, they were fixated on what might God be doing. And so when the prison doors opened, they knew that they didn't open so that Paul and Silas could be freed from prison, but rather they opened so that their prison guard might be freed from sin. And this is the same thing that's happening in the book of Philippians. Paul is employing something that looks an awful lot like the practice of emotion that would follow a cognitive theory of emotion. He is controlling his thoughts. He is taking every thought captive. He is being renewed by the transforming of his mind rather than being conformed to the patterns of the world. 
So Paul is focused on what God might do in the middle of the pain and the suffering and the adversity. And, and I love just the beautiful symmetry that's taking place, right? Because the book of Philippians is being sent to the church in Philippi. So that prison card in Acts chapter 16, presumably him and his family are reading this letter. And presumably everybody reading the letter of Philippians knows the story of this prison guard who came to, to the Lord as a result of what Paul was doing. As a result of the fact that Paul and Silas listened to the Holy Spirit, that they leaned in and they were looking for what the Holy Spirit might be doing. And so for you and me, when we're in suffering and pain and adversity, one of the things we might find ourselves doing if we're to follow Paul as he follows Christ is rather than, than fixating on the bitterness and the frustration and the hurt and the depression and the sadness and all of the feelings and the emotion and spiraling down into that pit, maybe we can press through that by searching desperately for what God might be doing in these circumstances. Uh, sometime early last week, I was um, having a quiet time. I was just starting my day off, trying to rest and connect with the Lord. Uh, and that time of just peace and connection with the Lord, as it often does, kind of just slowly devolved away from the Lord because I'm not as cool as I'd like to be. Um, and I do get distracted and I do get grumpy. And so I'm sitting there, and, and what started as a time of peace and connection with the Lord quickly turned into me just kind of ruminating and having one of those conversations in my head that Ryan was talking about last week where I'm like, like having a, a, like a make-believe confrontation with someone. So my family in the last couple of years, there have been a couple instances of some really painful breaking as a result of the, the decisions that a couple of people have made. And so in my head, I'm, I'm telling off one of these people. I'm telling them all the things that they've done wrong and how bad it was. And of course, in my head, they're like, oh my gosh, now I see and understand. And everything's gonna be better and it's gonna be so different. And this is a conversation that I know the Lord's not calling me to have. I'm not like prepping for like a real helpful thing. You know, I'm really just, just letting them have it in my head. Um, and I'm sinking into anger and bitterness and hurt. And as I'm doing this, I realize I'm ruminating. I'm fixating on things that are not fruitful, that are just turning into anger and bitterness. And I remembered the message that I was preparing and remembered the things that I was gonna be saying to you guys today. And I thought, maybe I should do the things that I'm learning from Paul's life. Um, maybe I should do the thing that I'm about to tell a bunch of people that they should try doing. Um, and so I, I start asking myself, well, knowing what I know about the character of God, what might he be doing in this situation? I decided not to turn on the TV and distract myself or open a book or, or look at my phone. I decided to press through the rumination and instead of obsessing on the bitterness to obsess on what might God be doing here. And, and I'm not telling you that I received some, some powerful prophetic insight from the Lord or a word of knowledge from the Lord about what he was going to do. But there was, a, there was an incredible amount of peace and strength that came as I just started kind of picking up every rock and kicking over every stone and cracking every door and looking around the corners of the circumstance and the pain and the suffering and the adversity and the heartbreak and the brokenness and just saying, knowing what I know about the character of God, what might he be doing in the brokenness in my family? And as I thought about that, eventually at some point in time, my mind, uh, it just came to the story of Joseph right, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And decades later, there was a moment, an opportunity for reconciliation. And Joseph said, you know, what you guys meant for evil, 
the Lord meant for good. And I thought, I don't know what the Lord's gonna do here. This brokenness that's just a constant weight in the back of my heart. But I have seen him do so many beautiful things with so much brokenness. And it actually shifted my bitterness to a place of excitement to see what God might do. Not what I know he's gonna do, but just what he might do. And to know that all of the options are good. Like Paul who says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. They're all good. If I live, it'll be good. If I die, it'll be good. If the Lord restores the way I'm praying that he will, it'll be good. If he doesn't, it'll be good. I don't, um, I don't have a lot, uh, I think, for you guys today, but I, but I do have these couple things. If, if, you're, if you're hoping to figure out how do I build a stronger Lego spaceship, how do I get some of that health? Maybe a few of the things that might help. Maybe the next time you're suffering and in pain and experiencing adversity, maybe one of the first things you can do is drag your body into worship. Maybe you can get on your knees. Maybe you can lift your hands. Maybe you can sing out loud. Maybe you can shout to the Lord. Maybe you can lie down flat on your face as you worship God and acknowledge that he is good even if you're in prison. Maybe the next time you're suffering and you're tempted to get out of there, just really quick, before you leave the pain, before you leave the suffering, just check in with the Holy Spirit and say, is this a time for me to leave the circumstances and the prison and the pain? Or is this a time for me to lean into the pain? Because I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you lead me. And maybe the next time you find yourself ruminating and fixating on the bitterness and the anger and telling someone off or thinking about how depressed you are and how there's no way to fix the circumstances and you're just gonna be like this forever and it's gonna get worse. Maybe the next time you find yourself doing that, you can just pause and you can, you can search out every corner of the circumstance, asking yourself, what might God be doing? What might he be doing? Um, we serve a God who is really good at taking brokenness and doing something beautiful. We're gonna have a moment of, of communion here. If you're a believer, I'd encourage you to join us uh, in this. If not, uh, you're always welcome to come talk, chat with someone about what communion is and what it, what it means to us. Um, but in churches all over the world, we, we have those things. We have these big crosses that are like the, the focal point of our architecture most of the time because they're the focal point of our lives, of our relationship with God. Because God is a God who takes suffering and pain and death and he turns it into something beautiful. If Jesus could do that, if he could take his own death and turn it into freedom for us and restoration for us, what could he do with the circumstances that you're going through? What could he do with the things that are causing you anxiety and depression and pain and hurt? I guess it's something really cool. So Jesus, um, we're told on the night before he was betrayed, uh, he was spending time with his friends. And he took some bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So as we take the bread, I want you to remember that his broken body has done something beautiful. And he's probably able of doing something really beautiful in your broken life. 
Let's take the bread. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. And as we take this cup, I just want you to remember that his death meant our life. How much more can he do with our suffering and our pain? How much more life can he bring in the moments when he calls us to lean in? Let's take the cup. Jesus, we love you and we worship you and we praise you. And we look to you for strength and resiliency and fortitude and anti-fragility and all of those things, Lord. We look to you. We want to follow you, Jesus. We want to learn from your word. We want to be whole and healthy as we lean into you. Amen.